Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This week we're going to be talking about trans rights um, with Christine Burns, who is a British political activist best known for her work with Press for Change. Um, and more recently as an internationally recognised health advisor. And we had the most fascinating conversation about Christine's life, about her activism, and about the role she's played in many of the most important uh, advances for trans rights in the past few decades. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to find out more about the podcast and support it to help make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks so much, Christine, for coming on the podcast. I'm a long-term admirer of your work. Um, I've, you know, I've got Trans Britain, um, the book, which which I loved, and I can see. Although the the people listening won't be able to see your bookshelves that I can see, but I can see a few copies of it there. I can see um, some lovely pictures and other important books as well, um, and also on Twitter. And I think that you know, I, I'm always interested to see what you're saying on particular issues. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, I'm I'm really pleased to be here. I love listening to your podcast as well. So, uh, so we can have a, lo- a mutual love in here, if you like. <laughs> Great. I mean, as as interesting as that would be for for the for the listeners, I think they'll be even more interested to hear about um, how you got into campaigning for trans rights. Well, as I said at the beginning of the very first book I, I read, wrote about this subject, which was actually the insider story of how Press for Change as a campaign came to be, and how we went through the process of going from for uh, volunteers working from spare bedrooms to changing the law of the land. Um, I, I never imagined that I would be an activist. You're, you're, uh, I grew up in a fairly small C conservative household and you know, the way that activism is presented or was presented in the media is not uh, a very complimentary thing. But when I actually, when I realized at the end of the eighties that you know, I'd landed myself by transition uh, into the midst of a, a problem that at first seemed insoluble. I suddenly saw the point in activism and uh, learning how we got into that mess and how we might be able to get out of it as well. But Press for Change itself, the campaign I got associated with at the beginning of the 90s, I mean, we had, we had had... Uh, support groups for trans people for a good 25 years. The first one was set up called the Beaumont Society in 1965, modelled on something similar going on in the United States in those days. But because of the way we felt so totally slapped down by uh, a very key case, um, Corbett v Corbett, that took place in 1969, uh, and our rights were just whipped away from underneath our feet. Um, we felt for a very long time that there was nothing we could do. You know, if, if, you, if there's an injustice, what do you do? Uh, well, one option you might have is you could go, go to the press and you could find a campaigning journalist who would 
put forward the injustice and get get people talking about it. Well, the the role that the press saw for us, certainly since the mid-1950s, had been as titillation to sell Sunday newspapers. They, uh, they're only interested in, tra- in trans people was to hunt us down, corner us, photograph us and, uh, and slap us on the front page as something terrible to confess to. Um, and although there were exceptions to that, there was a, a, a notable biography by a, a Times journalist called Jan Morris when she transitioned over the course of the late 60s and early 70s. That was published in 1974. Conundrum was perhaps the first occasion when a trans person wrote personally uh, about the experience of being trans. But to go back to what I was saying, the the, the press were not going to be our friends in this. And likewise, the next stop you might pay to is is, is members of parliament. And because of what the press were doing, there were no votes for members of parliament in 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 getting tangled up with uh, saying... Trans people are having a beastly time. They uh, they have no effective employment rights. They know they have no effective access to uh, help on the national health service. Um, they stand to be outed any time they're asked to present a, a birth certificate, um, and you know they cannot legally be raped. And there's a whole long list of indignities right up to after you've died uh, with. Um, people insisting that we be we be buried under our birth certificate name. So uh, yeah, it, was, it was not a good time, but we could see no way out of it. And then in 1986, uh, a very lovely trans man called Mark Reese, um, who'd had enough of that, um, took a series of cases through the courts until he, re- uh, until he arrived at the European Court of Human Rights. And his case, And all the cases that followed, in fact, were based on claims uh, regarding Article 8, the right to private life, home correspondence, and Article 12, the right to marry and found a family. Uh, And obviously tied in with that, probably Article 14 as well, the right to be free of discrimination. And his case was that on on all those grounds, he was uh, suffering uh, problems purely because the government refused to do what it had done before the April Ashley case, which was to provide a means for trans people having transitioned to change their birth certificate, for that change to be regarded as having legal effect. And those two things are actually separate. Um, and therefore to be able to settle down, perhaps to marry, to, uh, to, to, to safely take up a job where the new employer might ask to see your birth certificate for the, uh, yeah, for, for the pension and uh, insurance scheme. Um, and we lost all that, as I say. So he took that to the European Court of Human Rights and he made the point that he wanted to train as a Church of England vicar. But in those days, of course, we didn't have women priests and the law regarded him as being a woman. Um, likewise, he would like to marry and settle down with a woman, but because the law regarded uh, him as a woman, that was off the table. Ironically, when he did get to the European Court of Human Rights, counsel for the government actually said, 
that he wasn't being discriminated against because he could marry a man. And this was two years before Section 28, with the government <laughs> arguing to a European court that it would be per perfectly cool in these circumstances for two men to settle down and be married. Can we just circle back a bit? Um, I, I want to hear a, a bit more about you, Christine, if I may. Um, and and where, where did you grow up? You said you grew up in a conservative household. Whereabouts in the country was it? I was born in Essex, uh, about five, ten miles outside of London. And uh, my father was an electrical engineer. My mum had been a, a soprano with the entertainment corps during the war. Uh, and they were, you know, they were always striving to do better for themselves. And so I think their aspirations accorded more with what conservatism presented in the, in the 1950s and the early 60s than with, with what Labour appeared, appeared to represent. But yeah, I, from from about four years old. So we're talking uh, before I started school, and still in the nineteen fifties, I told my mum that uh, I wanted to be to grow up to be a girl, to be a lady. And my parents' reaction to that at the time, because you know, how would they know any different, was to was to was to uh, deal with that by mocking it, by by laughing at me. So I learned very very quickly that this was something that I shouldn't have said, and I'm not going to say again, uh, and that it was something that I would have to try and keep to myself and, and, and try and deny. Uh, and at that time, I didn't know there was anybody else like me. Ironically, a month after I was born, uh, one of uh, Britain's first acknowledged trans women, Roberta Cowell, published her life story in the Picture Post, so other people knew that there were trans people. And of course, there was also the famous international case of Christine Jorgensen as well. Interestingly, people had not really noticed the existence of the trans men who uh, had been very prominent during the, the 20s, 30s, 40s. But when people suddenly started becoming women, then suddenly this was a whole different thing for the press to take an interest in. And as I say, they, they developed the idea that this sold newspapers and trans people were guilty felons who should be tracked down and uh, embarrassed and told to confess. Uh, that happened to a, a very nice trans man called um, Michael Dillon, who was a doctor who had transitioned in the 1940s with medical assistance with, uh, with both hormones and surgery and completed his training and settled down and then became a ship's doctor. And um, when, it, when it came to light that he was trans, the press were lined up on the quayside in New York when his ship came in to demand to, uh, to, to hear from him and give him, him giving an account of himself. The poor man went off to Tibet to become a Buddhist monk uh, and died a couple of years later from uh, re respiratory disease. So that wasn't a happy ending. Likewise, the, the newspapers outed uh, April Ashley, who we've already mentioned, a socialite and model who'd actually come from a very low-class family in Liverpool, uh, but she went to Paris, she became a showgirl, and through that means she discovered a surgeon in Casablanca, and when she came back, she, uh, she, she, because she was a model, uh, she moved in, in the high life of the famous people, uh, she was a favourite of David Bailey's, the photographer, 
Uh, and when she was outed by a, a newspaper, somebody gave away her details for five pounds to the, uh, to a, uh, a journalist. Her her career as a model ended overnight, but she'd already met a, uh, a a man who was in line to inherit a title and a fortune, Arthur Corbett, and they married in Gibraltar. And after a couple of years, this marriage hadn't worked out. And um, April was quite happy to divorce. She just wanted the house that uh, she loved in, in, uh, in Gibraltar. And his family weren't having any of that and decided to, uh, to challenge their marriage on the grounds that uh, by establishing that she was not legally a woman, uh, that her marriage to Arthur Corbett could never have been legal in the first place. It was uh, po probably perjurious. Uh, and certainly, I think the term is void ab initio. Uh, it never existed. Therefore, she, she couldn't have any kind of settlement from, from him because there was nothing to settle. And it was at that point in when that hit the high court that uh, a, a decision was made uh, that affected all of us going forward that for the purposes of marriage, uh, April was, was to be regarded as sex on her birth certificate. The judge had constructed a convoluted test, which the medical professionals weren't happy about. Um, uh, but what it meant was that no trans person's marriage at that time was safe. So this was going on while I was growing up. Uh, I became aware of it in, I think, 1966. I was 12 years old. And I remember reading about April Ashley in the News of the World and discovering, yes, there is somebody like me. I really identify with who she is. Uh, but also, is, this is even worse than I thought. Yeah, so I, I continued my adolescence, again, feeling guilty uh, and keeping my identity a really deep secret until I got to university in the beginning of the 70s and actually had the space and the freedom and the privacy to be able to, at last, uh, experiment with being me and you know, deciding whether, because it's not a decision that you rush into. I constructed all sorts of experiments and tried to persuade myself otherwise. You know, the, the thing that I think people miss is that trans people would really rather find anything that was an alternative to transitioning because transitioning seemed to mean losing your family, losing your job, losing your career, losing all your prospects and being an outcast. Uh, and who wants to choose that for themselves? But we cannot stop being who we are. Um, and you know, so when Jan Morris's book came out in 1974, which was further affirmation that you can be trans and you can be uh, yeah, really quite articulately trans uh, and uh, explain the experience. Uh, again, I devoured that book, I remember, and thought, OK, but now I've got a problem because I'm looking at both April Ashley who was uh, very elegant and, uh, and beautiful. People wanted to photograph her in designer clothes. And uh, Jan Morris, who was very intellectual, very lyrical in the way she wrote. 
and they'd both gone to a doctor in Casablanca. And I don't know if you, uh, people know that you know, in the 1970s, as Britons, we didn't tend to go abroad unless we were very rich. The only time you went abroad was if you were serving Her Majesty's government. But otherwise, you know, it, it was in the 1970s that Freddie Laker started off the idea of cheap package holidays. But the idea of, you know, of going to a, a town or a city in North Africa where you don't speak the language to find a surgeon in the phone book and then talk to them and give them money to submit to a really quite intense surgery of several hours uh, just on the fact that you've heard a couple of people went there. Yeah, I, I started to think, well, yeah, for everything, maybe I'm not trans enough. You know, there's, and when people ask, you know, why did my generation of trans people take a long time to transition? These are the sorts of accounts that explain why that was. It didn't mean that, yeah, I wasn't trans when I was four years old and telling my mum, or I wasn't trans when I was 12 years old and reading the paper, or I wasn't trans when I was you know, hitting 20 years old and reading about Jan Morris. I was. But, you know, it was extremely difficult to see a path that I could follow. And that stayed that way until 1979, when the BBC uh, broadcast a documentary about a more down-to-earth, uh, lower-class trans woman called Julia Grant, um, who was, she was working as a, a, as a, uh, as a hospital uh, chef and the, it was one of these fly, early fly-on-the-wall documentaries that followed her life. It followed her to her experience of being talked down to by an NHS clinician. And it followed her to finding a private surgeon in Hove, who turned out eventually to be the surgeon that I found as well. But I think there were, across the country in 1979, there must be people just like me watching BBC One and this programme and thinking, there is a way. She'd actually shown how there could be a path. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers really spiked uh, in the early 80s of people transitioning because suddenly we could actually see a route. You know, so publicising the fact that people are trans and transition and have surgery doesn't make them trans. It just enables people who are otherwise you know, closeted and incredibly miserable. One question, on, on a sort of philosophical level, um, I, I've got in in my sort of little note that I've made for 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 this um, podcast the definitions from the Stonewall glossary of of trans, um, which you know just so we're we're talking about the same thing, and and the definition they use is. Trans is an umbrella term to describe people whose gender is not the same as or do, does not sit comfortably comfortably with the sex they were assigned at birth. And then there's, you know, they go into the lots of different terms, transgender, transsexual, gender quip, etc, etc. And, and just thinking about this, this, this word trans, um, it's interesting to me listening to what you're saying that it's amongst all the sort of identities that we might have, religious identities, um, sexual identities or, or whatever, trans is the only one that has within it a sort of, it, it's a, it sounds like a process. You're transitioning from one thing to another. And, and do you think that sets maybe unreasonably 
expectations and almost sort of demands on an individual who you know you say you you were you, you knew you were trans when you were a child you know but you weren't i assume thinking well i'm going to have surgery now but do you think there's a certain there's a certain sort of external expectation that that even just the term imposes which which may not be fair um uh- yeah, the, pro- the complication is, is that we're talking already, I mean, I'm, I'm nearly 70 and we're talking about a span of development of, you know, nearly three quarters of a century. But, you know, I can talk to you about trans people who existed 100 years ago, but they didn't call themselves trans. The terminology was being coined. But by the time that I was finding people of a kindred spirit, we didn't have that word trans. There were there were there were two things you could be, uh, and it was very confusing between the two. There were um, what doctors called transsexual, and that's what they would describe me as. And uh, we lived in a world where we were somewhat un- outnumbered by men who cross dress, but who because of there was a sort of overlap in our experiences of the law that we actually found that. You know, that that was a that was a uh, a port in a storm where we could actually at least feel safe talking to them. Um, so, peop, um, the word trans itself uh, has an interesting origin. In in the early seventies, an, an American uh, trans woman co- coined the term transgender. So that added to the lexicon, and that was actually to express at the time uh, the idea that you could transition but not um, undergo surgeries. Uh, But later, the press came to to pounce on the word transgender and used it more generally as as, as a term to to, to cover transsexual people too. And then in around about 1997, as an activist campaign, we were beholding that there was a real confusion of language around. And one of the problems we found was that the term transsexual, because it contained the word sexual, tended to, to frighten the horses. And there were lots of disputes about how, uh, what, how other people would describe themselves. And we decided to actually try and introduce a new term. And I remember having this conversation with my colleagues, arguing that firstly, we wanted to ensure that uh, we had a word that uh, could only be used as an adjective and not as a noun because calling somebody a transsexual is rather like calling somebody a black or a cripple or all those other terms that, thank goodness, you know, we've we've understood why we should move away from those. And my apologies for using those terms, but I need to explain that. Um, So by coining just the word trans, we felt we had an opportunity to to sort of rewrite the book to say first that we intend this to be a an umbrella term that people can can shelter under but also it's a term that we think um, can't be misused because it sounds odd to say a trans but to use trans as an adjective in front of a a trans politician or a uh, a trans computer scientist in my case, or a trans woman or a trans man, that emphasizes the fact that trans is a characteristic of a larger genus that, um, that we 
associate with. So that was why we were trying to change the language and, and make it less contentious in the, in the end of the 90s. So if people hate the word trans, then in part, although we don't claim to have invented it, we certainly set out to popularize it and to, and, and to reset a conversation around it. To, to just take out the trans from transsexual or transgender and to use that as the umbrella term, which is, I guess, isn't how it's used now. That's right. But we have to recognise that you know, the, the, the terms that apply have to be uh, relevant to the, the, the period in time. You know, if you look back to some of the figures that we've unearthed in the 19th century, who, by their behaviour, if they live today they would be described as trans and they would ident probably identify themselves as trans. None of those words existed then, but they did. So they just, you know, and they had no model, but they knew how they felt. And the you know, history is absolutely full of people just getting on and transitioning to the extent that they could. You know, there were no hormones, there were no surgeries in the 19th century, but it didn't prevent people being very obviously trans. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can go back thousands of years and find trans people. I mean, there's trans, there's, there's laws against um, trans in the Old Testament um, where it says... And why would there be those laws if we hadn't existed? Exactly. It says a woman should not dress in a man's clothes and a man should not dress in a woman's clothes because it is, and I can't remember exactly, it's sort of a de desecration it, of God is, or something. It is an abomination, I think. An abomination. Well, well exactly. And, 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 and as, as is homosexuality in the Old Testament. But the point is, the reason for those laws is quite clearly that they that there were those people who who were doing that um and therefore yes. they had to be yet, they had to be dealt with by the laws and yet at that time adam you know, if you look at the uh, the jewish scripture then you find quite a sophisticated catalog of different terms for different kinds of gender variants um yeah. so uh, i can't i can't pull them off the top of my head, they're in my book. But uh, I thought, this is very sophisticated. This is, this is a culture which more than 2,000 years ago recognised that there are people who are intersex, that there are people who are uh, mentally intersex, uh, and that society should accommodate those people um, because they obviously exist. Uh, and we're a civilised society and we want, we want to make space for them. And I'd say that also that brings up the fact that we exist right across all cultures around the world as well. In fact, it tends to be a Western obsession with thinking that we are degenerate and problematic. And whenever uh, Britain had gone and conquered other countries, which were quite relaxed with, with their uh, gender variant populations and maybe even revered them, along come the British or the Portuguese or whoever and saying, no, that's bad. You need, you need to stop doing that. You, here's our laws for how to outlaw them. Well, I, I'm actually just getting a message from my wife, who is listening, who's obviously walked past the door and listened, listening to me getting it wrong. She says that trans means across, not mm. change. She's she's a linguist, and I, yes. I think that's really that's yes. probably m m more interesting as a as a verb because you're going across from one mm. thing to another, and, and under the word, well, the word anyway. Yes, uh, and yeah. But when bringing that up, because that's that's quite right, that is that that's the root uh, term we're using in the same way as science uses it. 
Uh, but science also, for exactly the same reason, uses the prefix kiss, C-I-S, uh, for on the same side of. Uh, and you know, a good example of that is space travel, where you know, when a, a rocket goes from Earth to the moon, it's on a translunar trajectory. When it reaches the moon and goes into orbit, it is kiss lunar. Um, so, you know, it makes it, it is logical that if you're going to describe trans people, then although I've tried throughout my book to use the term non-trans uh, to describe the rest, actually, kiss gender is a is a is a good um, scientific etymology. So, you know, that people have decided that for some reason that having a special name for people who are you know, who are human but not trans is a slur. But you know, it came from a, a, a good uh, linguistic intentions to be able to have a conversation where you can con uh, compare and contrast. Also, it's um, it's a nice metaphor to be travelling into space and then orbiting, orbiting the moon. I guess. Um, let, let's just go, let's come back down to Earth. Um, for, 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 let's go back to. Um, I think so. So we we've we've talked about Corbett and Corbett, which was um, the case about the the marriage, which wasn't a marriage in law, um, according to Mr. Justice Ormrod, and he went through. I mean, that's an interesting judgment because he there's lots of scientific sort of evidence about gonads and you know and uh, hormones, hormonal uh, markers, and that sort of thing, and and he does a bit of sort of amateur, well, I guess judicial science to get there. <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about that because I, I wanted. I, I think we're going to run out of time if we don't get to the the more recent cases. Um, but then I guess what you you're at university in the seventies, and then the in the eighties you have Reese in the UK, which is which is the the case where the European Court of Human Rights goes up to but doesn't goes to water but doesn't drink it sort of says well yeah we can see why all these rights are very important to identity and that sort of thing but there is this wide mar margin of appreciation for <laughs> for states in europe they're not quite there yet with um you know with with giving trans people the right to change their birth certificates and that sort of thing so we're not going to find a breach in this case well what i think the the, the court was very smart with was realizing that this was a subject which was still developing. And unlike in many judgments, saying we'll keep this open and come back to it. So in 1989, there was an almost identical case of a trans woman called Caroline Cossey, um, who again was making more or less the same arguments on Article 8 and Article 12. And she lost, but by a significantly smaller uh, difference. 10-8. Yeah, ten eight, very in, very close. So a ten eight, she she lost by a ten eight majority, and the, and the majority said there hadn't been sufficient scientific or societal changes to warrant a departure from the position in Reese. But clearly, the the dial was quite was almost literally shifting. But but interestingly, two years later in nineteen ninety two, the same court found against France in a case which you might not have come across called B versus France. Uh, now, France is different because it has a different civil registration system and therefore different problems and uh, for trans people. Uh, and the case was over the, the state's refusal to change uh, a trans person's identity card. And France lost that, but without actually shifting the principle that had been made for, for, for Britain. But then in 1997, you get another 
two trans people coming back in Sheffield and Horsham. And the margin got even slimmer to the point where I think if only one judge had voted the other way, then Britain would have lost at that point. Uh, and then you know, we get to 2002 with Goodwin and I, again, almost exactly the same kinds of evidence on Article 8 and Article 12. And the word I got back on that was that by that point, the European court was thoroughly pissed off with Britain because on every occasion, uh, counsel for Britain said, had said, uh, you know, this is very complicated. We're working on it. We're, it's finely balanced. We need to... And, you know, you can only spin that line to an international court so many times, I think. And it was a, it was a plenary court and they unanimously found against Britain. Let's just pause there because I do want, I want to talk about Goodwin Christine Goodwin's case a, a bit more. But first of all, I want to situate it in time. When So this is 2002. Had you st- did Press for Change, Press for Change had already existed at that point? Well, not only had we already existed, we were yes. all winning cases. We had won uh, another case on the matter of uh, the uh, of employment protection, uh, the case of P versus S and Cornwall County Council, which started in an employment tribunal, moved to an appeal tribunal, and then the appeal tribunal said to the European Court of Justice, can you determine for us this, this point of interpretation of the Equal Treatment Directive? Uh, is it unlawful to discriminate against somebody because they are planning to undergo, have undergone gender reassignment? Um, and that case that came back in 1996, I think, was just before, of course, we had a change of government. And with that change of government, the new Labour government wanted to induct that decision into the Sex Discrimination Act to make up for the fact that an earlier case back in the uh, early 80s, White v. Uh, British Sugar, had actually argued that it wasn't discrimination to uh, discriminate against a trans person in employment if you would argue that if this was a trans woman, you would have discriminated against a trans man um, in in exactly the same way. It was a sort of doctrine of equal misery. Um, It had originally been intended, as far as we can determine, that the Sex Discrimination Act should cover trans people when it was uh, debated in ni- and passed in 1975. So this case in the early 80s, White v British Sugar, had actually effectively shut us out of the protection that we thought we had. And so P versus S and Cornwall County Council going to the European Court of Justice actually restored that right. So so often these things that we're actually campaigning for were the restoration of rights that were taken away. The same goes for legal recognition, changing birth certificates, if we've got time to come back to that. But the point was that in 1999, we had the Sex Discrimination Gender Reassignment Regulations, which I worked on very closely uh, with ministers and senior civil servants. In fact, it was working on that case that really opened the door to um, lawmakers realising that although we were these strange trans people working in our bedrooms on a shoestring, we were actually worth talking to and we could we could prevent them from ending up with egg on their face. And when people talk these days about you know, what, what the Equality Act says about trans people, it's worth remembering that the majority of what's in the Equality Act 2010 
is actually lifted wholesale from the sex discrimination gender reassignment regulations. So we're dealing in a territory where the protection of trans people's employment rights and their rights to vocational education uh, have been settled uh, and legislated law for 22 years now. So it's not something new that suddenly come along and it was typed untested. There's a tremendous amount of case law of uh, courts and well, tribunals mostly, looking at the circumstances of a discrimination case, looking at the, uh, the, the, the legislation we produced and having no difficulty interpreting it. Even when that included jobs that involved shared accommodation, for instance. So when, you, when Press for Change started, was was the strategy to use litigation as a tool? Yes, the bridge, the bridge, the thing that created Press for Change was the aftermath of the Reese case in realizing that uh, Reese had started a conversation about people discussing, uh, and also had shown that this was a tool that we could use to maybe we'd lost on that occasion, but maybe if we refined our arguments and kept at it. Then, then we could win. Uh, and as we discovered, of course, with P versus S, uh, the result of winning in these kinds of cases is actually forcing a reluctant government to, uh, to, to do the proper thing and to legislate. So you know, from a very, very early stage, you could say actually you know, press for change existed because we realized that strategic litigation works. And you know, some of the heroes of my life are lawyers and judges. And, and so when, when was Press for Change set up? It was founded in 1992. And it's founded because Sir Alex Carlyle, who was Liberal Democrat Home Affairs spokesman at the time, uh, had approached Mark Rees saying, sorry, you lost this case. It's, uh, you know, there's some really important issues here. Uh, yeah, come along, bring your friends along and let's discuss how we could help. And he said at the time, I think very presciently, that uh, it would probably take about 10 years and that we needed to form a, a campaign organisation, a lobby. So that's what people went off and did and formed Press for Change in a tea shop just across the road from um, Alex Carlyle's offices. But, you know, in those days, there was no internet. There was practically no email for most people. Um, we had no money. Uh, we had no means of contacting the thousands of trans people scattered around the country. We, uh, most of them were unemployed because we didn't have employment protection. Yeah, how to build an effective lobby out of that hand is extremely difficult. And so um, one of the books I've written is about actually how we did that, starting from, you know, starting from zero and building up and educating people about the rights that they did have as well. A lot of it was about giving legal counsel to people to, to explain where they did actually have rights um, even then. Uh, and then to get people behind us all talking the same way about the cases that we brought. And, you know, P versus S, the employment case wasn't the only one. Uh, there was a case in 1997 of four trans women taking the uh, Northwest Lancashire Health Authority to court because the health authority had used every trick in the book to try and avoid referring them to gender specialists. Um, and 
they won. Uh, but then the health authority decided to appeal it. And that was in, in 1999, they won again uh, and therefore created you know, fairly strong case law, which was subsequently used uh, to argue for the, um, you know, for the availability of expensive um, cancer drugs for other people as well. I always love it when the advances we make in the law can actually be applied to advance the rights of other people as well. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. And so we get to let's get back to Goodwin then Christine Goodwin because yeah. because that's that's a really you know um, central and important moment I guess for for you and was 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 press for change involved in that case at all how did that come about um, my colleague Stephen Whittle was involved we were a multi talented bunch we all had our own specialities uh, I'm as you know I'm not a lawyer but Stephen was very instrumental in bringing together all the lawyers who are interested in working on trans-related cases. And therefore, he had a, a lot of input into how Goodwin was handled. Obviously, as a, as a lobby, we had a very strong interest in ensuring that nobody dropped the ball and made a, made a hash of one of these cases. And so th- that case went to Strasbourg and, and it was basically, it, it was essentially unanimous. I think there was there was a couple of partly dissenting opinions but compared to um, the previous cases it you know it was a home run um, and I think for me like the key the absolute key line and the one in a way which is most has echoed down the ages in into the gender recognition act which we talk about is um, a conflict between social reality and law arises which places the transsexual in an anomalous position in which he or she may experience feelings of vulnerability, humiliation and anxiety. And that, that line, that a conflict between social reality and law is, I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting and so important and it reflect, it's reflected in all the case law that came beyond. But what to me, what the court is saying is social reality allow has is now allows for trans people to be a different sex or, or a different gender or whatever you want to describe it social reality is not being reflected by the law well the other the other significant difference looking across that span of 15 years and four cases was that also far more european states had brought out their versions of gender recognition acts at the time uh, we um helped Liberty to provide an amicus brief uh, for the Goodwin and I case, which established that across the, I think there were 39 states in the Council of Europe at that time, there were only four which didn't have legal recognition for trans people. And those were Great Britain, uh, the Republic of Ireland, Albania and Andorra. So it wasn't essentially a very good company to be keeping. It really stressed that we are an outlier. And this was really attacking this issue about the margin of appreciation. Because you know, when you're down to only four states out of 39, 
you know, deciding to dissent from the idea of having legal recognition, then you, there is no margin left. And so Goodwin is 2002, um, and not very long after at all is the Gender Recognition Act in 2004. Oh, that's, that's because we'd already done the preparatory work. Uh, even as far back as John Major's government, they had started work on saying, how would we do this? We were handed a leak that the Daily Mail had received, which showed actually how they went through the thinking process, which um, government department should lead on how you recognise uh, transsexual people. Um, and then as a result of some of our more general lobbying, um, we've uh, caused the Labour government to set up a working group um, to which we were eventually invited to contribute ideas and a paper on what should they do? Should they completely recognise us? Should they have some sort of fuzzy amelioration that just undid some of the worst problems? Or should they do nothing? And the conclusion of that working group that was set up by Jack Straw, which came out in April 2000, uh, essentially just completely endorsed everything that we'd been arguing for. But then at the time, of course, 2000, um, Tony Blair's government was heading towards its first election in office. There, there hadn't been uh, a second term for a Labour, Labour government in, I'm not even sure if there ever had been one before. And other things were put on the back burner too, like the repeal of Section 28. It was repealed in Scotland, but the repeal in, in, uh, in England had to wait until Labour came back from, uh, from a second election victory. And then, of course, right slap bang in the middle of that, we were sort of kicked into the long grass. And then um, Goodwin and I, you know, just took away all of the government's options. And almost immediately we had uh, cont contacts from civil servants saying, could you come in and talk? You know, how, what, what exactly do you want? And how do you think we should, we should deliver it? It's an amazing, amazing tribute to where you must have been in the in the sort of public and private conversations that they that they called you in to say, what have you got for us to use? We, we had been working for donkey's years by this point on establishing uh, our credentials as serious people. You know, in my day job, I was a senior consultant uh, giving advice at two and a half thousand pounds a day to blue chip companies. You know, to, to say that somehow or other, because I'm trans, they shouldn't listen to me, would be, would be uh, silly, I think is the term. Um, and, you know, everything we told them would happen had happened. Uh, and everything we told them about how they could put it right made sense. So that, you know, through 2002, it meant that by the time of December 2002, we were able to, to get the government to the point of making a public announcement that was there was going to be a gender recognition bill uh, coming forth in the in the next session, uh, and then we helped the civil servants and ministers to consult on that bill as well. And I think this is a very important point because people make out nowadays that there was no conversation about this. And my contention is that at every step of the way, people were involved and being consulted about this. I look upon those court cases as being forms of debate and consultation. You know, they're, they're, they're court case, courts aren't like university debating societies. 
um, because they are pursuing the truth and facts matter rather than how good a performance you make at the, um, at the, at the, the dispatch box. Um, but, you know, there, was a, this, there had been a long conversation about the position of trans people in society. The press, every time we won a case, went completely doolally for a week. When we won the, uh, the, the case involved access to the NHS, they went doolally for two weeks. And as if you know, the fact that we had secured by legitimate judicial means the rights that everybody else had to, uh, to access services for uh, legitimate uh, medical conditions on the NHS uh, was, a, was a problem of some sort. And when you say Dulali, do you mean were they Dulali like they are Dulali now, as yeah, in like yeah. that, as as in the? I, I mean, I, I don't mean that saying journalists are Dulali, but the kinds of reactions or the kinds of um, the way in which trans issues are spoken about n- now in the press about the danger of trans people, the you know the the hospital wards, that sort of thing. Is is yeah. that was that the same kind of thing yeah. then? The, the, these the, the arguments being made today. Are not new. Uh, they 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 have existed going back forty years, but mostly were had become fringe in society. But what would happen when we when we won a case, and this happened every single time, is that first we would get the reporting from the legal correspondents, and they would just lay it out exactly what the truth was, and this is why this is why the, the trans people had won. And then from the next day, you would get they would throw it to the, uh, the columnists, and it was always the same columnists who wanted to have a beef ag- ag- against trans people, but in those days weren't allowed to do it day in, day out. There had to be a reason. So us winning something was a hook for them to be able to bring out the same nonsense. Uh, and then maybe it would progress up to the leader writers as well, and then you would have the newspapers shaking their heads and uh, and saying this was a this was a terrible thing for society. So there was a there was a there was a transition which the story would always go through, like a like the shockwave from a, a you know, from a, from an earthquake. And I guess for them it was an earthquake. So we'll we'll come back to now. I just want to finish that bit of the story that we were at. So so the the, the in two thousand and four we had the Gender Recognition Act, and and the point of the Gender Recognition Act is to is to deal with the points made, I guess, in Goodwin, which is that once a person once a once a person transitions, and there was the emphasis on you know actual some sort of process, um, for rightly or wrongly, but that was the thing. They should be there f- then recognised in law on their birth certificate passport driving license you know social security whatever as their acquired gender well let's be clear those other documents you mentioned had never been affected by corbett corbett you know when i transitioned in the 80s i was able to change my driving license which has a gender marker in the number uh, just by saying sending a letter to the to the dbrc uh, i changed my um passport, which has a gender marker since about 1980, just by getting a letter from my doctor and sending that off with my application to renew my my passport. So it was only the birth certificate. uh, And as I don't think we've had time in this show to really explore um, before Corbett, as we said, uh, you know, people were able to change their birth certificate as well. How often do you use your birth certificate? 
It's not an identity document. It even says uh, on the bottom that it's not to be used as an identity document. If you misuse a, 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 a birth certificate, that's perjury and you go to jail. Um, so it's the Gender Recognition Act was incredibly narrowly cast as a means to, to, to formula, um, you know, formularize how to change a birth certificate. Um, yeah, other people have their birth certificates changed. You know, if you're, if you're um, uh, adopted, then you can have an adoption birth certificate. And the process by which that is manufactured is very similar to how a, a, a gender recognition certificate works as well. But all of this, let's not forget, was pursued by us, what, no, not just because we like playing games with the law, but because the uh, having a birth certificate that doesn't record the way that you present to the world is an open door to being discriminated against. It means you can never have um, security and privacy because somebody at some point may want to see your birth certificate and then they know and then they can tell somebody else and you can, you know, you can find you're unable to continue your life where you were peacefully enjoying your life. Trans rights has always been a really pure form of human rights pursuit. You know, we do, we do, we've, we've taken all of these cases because there are genuine um, yeah, problems for our lives if, if we are not accommodated by the law, as um, the, the, the justices in the European Court of Justice in 2000, sorry, the European Court of Human Rights said in 2002. So, and yeah, we've always been about trying to recover rights. As I say, you know, we had we had those rights before Corbett v. Corbett. We want we needed them back. We had employment rights before White v. British Sugar. We needed them back. It's not about wanting special rights. It's about having the same rights as everybody else because we are citizens like everybody else. And so that brings us very nicely to the Equality Act 2010. Um, now, the, the Equality Act um, prohibits discrimination um, and various other um, actions or various other bad things like harassment on the basis of protected characteristics. And one of them is gender reassignment. Um, and I'll just read the definition of gender reassignment. A person has the protected characteristic of gender reassignment if the person is proposing to undergo, is undergoing, or has undergone a process or part of a process for the purpose of reassigning the person's sex by changing physiological or other attributes of sex. Now, just pausing at that definition that going back to what we were talking about this idea that there's an expectation in law at the very least and maybe in society as well that trans people move from one thing to another in some sort of discernible way from one sex to another in a discernible way what's the what's from your knowledge what's the background to that to it to the definition of gender reassignment why was gender reassignment the thing to protect and it, it is down to the history of the sex discrimination gender reassignment regulations, where we hadn't actually considered the possibilities of taking doctors out of the loop at that point. Uh, and 
gender reassignment at that point was was understood to mean people who went through a medically supervised process of uh, hormonal and surgical reassignment. Um, but even so, there were there were there were gaps. There were people who cannot have surgery, particularly in those days, trans men. It's much easier to create a vagina than it is to create a penis. And the technologies for for for, man, for, for fashioning a penis back at the ends of the nineties were were very uh, you know, they quite often failed. Um, and a lot of trans men avoided them. So we came out of our work on the uh, sex discrimination um, regulations really well aware that anything that anything that we did in the law must accommodate the fact that uh, trans men in particular um, quite often at that time were not able to have genital um, surgery. They had um, breast surgery, they had top surgery, uh, that's not the same thing. And there are, there are of course, there are um, trans women who, for medi good medical reasons, are unable to complete some of those um, surgeries too. But I'm getting not sidetracked. So when the, the principal thing that we wanted out of the Equality Act was that um, because the sex discrimination regulations were based on the Equal Treatment Directive and an employment case, they only applied to the parts of the Sex Discrimination Act, which dealt with uh, employ uh, employment discrimination and vocational education. They did not touch services. Uh, and that was a bit of a bone of contention because people were still obviously being refused uh, various, you know, they, they might be refused like you know, wanting a cake or something or not allowed in shops. Uh, there are lots of cases of people being ejected from pubs, for instance. Um, so that was, I think, the main thing that we took into and talk about the Equality Act. And again, I want to emphasise for people who may be younger that the public conversation that led to the Equality Act was itself 11 years long. I remember attending consultations hosted by Labour in 1999 on what was then referred to as a, as a single Equality Act. Um, and um, we were mainly, as I say, taking what we'd already got and carrying that forward, but also wanting to ensure that we were less dependent on the say-so of, uh, of a doctor as to whether your identity mattered, and particularly in the Equality Act anyway, because it was admitting the possibility of discrimination by perception and discrimination by association then whether a doctor diagnosed you as trans or you, you just said you were trans was, was, was a moot point because discrimination could still occur. So but the thing that I think went wrong in the Equality Act, because things did go wrong, was that the government stuck doggedly to the term gender reassignment. We thought this was problematic because, for one thing, it, it carries that medical association. The word already had a meaning. And both sides uh, in, in, in committee were arguing that this was, this was going to lead to problems. But the, um, the bill minister was absolutely adamant that they had a definition of gender reassignment which accomplished everybody's aims. And I think that has led to a, a lot of confusion about 
what the uh, yeah how that how that part of the Equality Act is interpreted. But also, I think there's wider and slightly mischievous uh, misinterpretation as well by suggesting that we all live in silos, so that the provisions for sex discrimination only applied to cisgender women. Well, that's nonsense because sex discrimination protects everybody. Uh, as we had established, it protects men as well. You know, a man can claim sex discrimination uh, in the same way as a woman. And we'd established through the European Court of Justice that being discriminated against for changing your gender presentation was also a form of sex discrimination. And if I, if I felt myself discriminated, uh, let's say in a shop, I would have to decide whether they were discriminating against me on the grounds of the fact that I appear to be a woman or because I'm an old woman or because maybe somebody told them I'm trans. Um, you pick the parts of the, of the Equality Act that, that actually apply in the circumstances uniquely. And likewise, if a cisgender woman is turfed out of a, of a toilet because somebody thinks that she's not woman enough, uh, which is a circumstance which all this rhetoric is creating, then actually she, her recourse would be through the part of the Equality Act which, which deals with gender reassignment. Even though she hasn't had gender reassignment, she was perceived to have had gender reassignment. And that is the nature of the discrimination that uh, a court or tribunal would need, would, would need to address on the facts. So uh, we are having the wrong conversations about the Equality Act. People, some people have been taught now that it's there uh, for to protect these alleged sex-based rights. I don't know what they mean by sex-based rights, other than there was a sex-based right once uh, for men to vote and for women not to vote. And there was a sex-based right for men to have a higher purchase agreement or a bank account and not for women. Those are sex-based rights, and they were bad things. What we actually have in the Equality Act is protection for everyone as human beings, regardless of what's between their legs or perceived to be between their legs. And we have a better and more consistent law as a result. I mean, the, the, the difference, I guess, in the, in the two bits of legislation you're talking about, so the 1999 regulations and the 2010 Equality Act, I mean, there's, there's the concept of gender dysphoria, which I don't think appears in the in the in the regulations it's a, it's well it, it wasn't it there are a number of definitions in uh britain at the time was following the international classification of diseases which to, which categorizes people in terms of the conditions of transsexualism or not um the in america the diagnostic and statistical manual since the uh the late 80s had introduced the, di the diagnosis of um, gender, dys uh, gender dysphoria. Um, but in fact, since then, uh, and I helped work on, the, on, a, on a committee at the World Health Organization that did this, um, the International Classification of Diseases has uh, abandoned the idea of uh, transsexualism as a diagnosis, uh, and the di Diagnostic and Statistical Manual has abandoned that diagnosis. It recognises that there is unhappiness with being in the wrong gender, 
which may rise to a clinical level which you know, should be treated. But it is not a medical condition simply that I'm trans. Yeah, well, so, sorry, I, I, I've made a mistake there because it's in the Gender Recognition Act um, that there is the, yeah. the, there is this idea of dysphoria. Right. It's, it, it's it's not in the Equality Act, but it but it but the two connect. Yeah, in the in the Gender Recognition Act, we recognised as pragmatists at the time that we were going to have to accept the government wanting to include a role for doctors in in ticking the box that said. Uh, that we were we were trans in order to receive legal recognition, and they used this word gender dysphoria, which at that time still had currency. But the irony now is actually in the Gender Recognition Act. If you're applying for legal recognition, you're asking doctors to say you suffer from a condition that doesn't exist. And the other big change, which I guess has uh, you know has caused some difficulties of definition if i put it like that is that there seems to i'm guessing it was a kind of compromise but you tell me this idea that you you gender reassignment means the whole process including the proposing to undergo or undergoing um, or has undergone uh, or part of a process the purpose of reassigning a person's sex and that proposing to undergo is so vague um, that it that it really does seem to amount to a protection of you know a wide you know a very wide range of trans people you know that could be from somebody who feels they are trans and is looking into different options for them as as, as you know as early as that through to somebody who's had sort of surgery but that basis of the P versus S case. The starting point for P versus S was that P, a senior manager in in an educational institution in Cornwall, informed their manager that they proposed to to go through gender reassignment treatment, which, as you've said, is a lengthy stage-by-stage process. You don't go off and come back the next day fully, fully member of the opposite gender. And in fact, the protections are most necessary in those early stages because that is when people encounter the strongest opposition. You know, you have a colleague who comes into work and starts to tell everybody, I am going to start transitioning to to be a member of the other gender. And as a result, you have all the arguments going all around the offices about what toilet they should use and whether you know you want um, somebody wants to work with that person or whether that person should be allowed near clients. You know the list is endless. The the real intense need for, uh, for protection, certainly of employment, uh, but also in services as well, is is when people are at their most visible. You know there was a time early in my in my in my transition when yeah i didn't not have this great privilege of being able to pass or walk down the street and mostly deal with the human race without them knowing i'm trans and because they don't know i'm trans i don't get the discrimination um i would only get the discrimination if my documents out me which is why we needed to have the gender recognition act but the starting point was a senior manager who was marched out of the office and who suffered really serious discrimination simply because they said they were going to embark on this process. So if we're going to have sensible protection for trans people in law, it actually has to involve all the phases of a trans person's life from the moment that they've communicated that they intend 
to, to, to transition. And then as they transition, um, these doctors that everybody worshipped ha have had protocols for decades that said in order, to, you know, in order to show that you're progressing in your gender reassignment, that you must use these facilities. You must persuade your employer that you need to use the ladies' toilets and that you need to be seen to hold down a job uh, seen as a, you know, with a with a payslip that says you're a woman with tax documents that say you're a woman and go shopping as a woman and all these other things you have to show they've been obsessed with this since the 1960s you have to show that you can cut it uh at, at gender reassignment before they will actually even even give you hormones that might make you look a little bit more feminism feminine feminine and then surgery that which actually affects bits of your body that probably most people will never see. I think this is hilarious that people are so hung up about genitals. But do you think it's do you think do you think it's particularly something about about this country? I mean, I, I don't. I, I remember I grew up in the sort of eighties and nineties, and I remember. Um, you know, so so around you know in the time of Section Twenty Eight, when I mean I went to a boys' school in Manchester. I guess there were fifteen hundred boys, and there wasn't a single out gay boy. There wasn't a sim single out trans person. Um, and and I remember the conversations were generally focused on the reason you couldn't have gay people or gay boys in a boys' school was because they rape you in the changing rooms. I mean that that was the kind of you know it was pretty universal. As in, if you're gay you will you know you are a danger you're going to rape me um we can't be, all be naked together that sort of thing but it but it seems very it it, it 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 you know i think there are differences between the conversations that are happening happening now and the conversations that are happening in the 80s and 90s over gay people but there are so many similarities um in that sort of the 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 location of the threat um and i don't know is it something that's unique to this country is it something which is you see in other parts of the world. I, I just don't know. I don't think it's unique to this country, but I think we put a particularly British spin on it. I think they have some of these uh, angst problems uh, in the United States as well. And maybe places like Australia, it's all the, it's all the Anglophone countries in particular that seem to, seem to have this problem. And it's hard to separate out where it comes from, but I think there's a lot of, there are, there's a lot of disgust uh, bound up in all of this stuff, you know, the the, um, the hostility towards gay and lesbian people is actually grounded in disgust. I'm so with you, um, and and I'm so uh, I've spoken quite a bit about. I don't know if you've read Jonathan Haidt's writings, but he talks about. He's a social psychologist who talks a lot about disgust and the the emotion of disgust and how how confused we get between. Um, our moral and political beliefs and our physical disgust reactions. And it's so, you know, as humans, we're very, um, we can be very disgust focused and conservative. The more conservative you are, the more, the stronger your feelings of disgust are. Um, and the more liberal you are, the less you have this kind of, you know, just to simplify this sense of disgust, which is why you're more likely to want to be um, coming into contact with people who are different to you. Um, but yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. That that word just does sum it up. And and of course, there's a lot of confusion. You know, the the, the people get really hung up on what I make them. You know, if if a man coming towards me fancies me, then he's fancying me because he thinks he's heterosexual, and he is because I'm a woman. But if then somebody tells him that I'm a trans woman and 
I was born with different anatomy, then this this disgust clicks in. And I don't think people are entirely responsible for their actions when it when it really roars up in people who have not thought anything about their identity until that point but all it means to them is does that make me gay because i've touched some flesh that that used to be man's flesh or i thought was man's flesh and this is why so many you know in this week when we're working up towards trans day of remembrance where hundreds of trans people mostly trans women and, and the majority of them in south america have been murdered uh, on the basis that it's regarded as an acceptable defense in many countries and certainly many uh, United States of America, uh, that you can claim that you murdered somebody because of the reaction that you had to discovering that they, they were trans. And this plays out in the media as well. You know, Ace Ventura is a particularly good example. I, I, was, I was just thinking about uh, the crying game in Ace Ventura, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, 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 who have a lot to answer for. And, and also, this, we could talk also about how this is what actually binds lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people together as well, because uh, I would say that quite often, uh, if somebody is homophobic towards somebody they meet, it's not necessarily on the basis of knowing for certain who they last slept with, but for people who are visibly gay, uh, then it's actually on the basis of um, them having broken the rules of the gender which they're supposed to be. And again, you know, there's a, the, you know, most of the antipathy that trans people seem to get is actually on the basis that we muck up this nice and neat binary which patriarchy relies on. You know, the thing that keeps everybody in their place is the rules we have drummed into us from childhood about what boys do, what boys are supposed to be like, what girls do, what girls are supposed to be like, what our roles are supposed to be. And trans people just wander into this space, which was previously regarded, okay, we've got that, and that keeps women in their place. We come along and we go and change gender and we make a mockery. You transgress, yes, in 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 the, in the sense that you're into abom- abomination, as we've been talking about from the Old Testament. That it's the exceptions to the it's the exceptions to the rule, and it's always. I mean, it, it, I guess with human rights, you often find yourself talking about minorities, which I don't really like that expression necessarily because it, it 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 almost it makes certain groups sound less they're the minor rather than the major but but it 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 often has a numerical aspect to it and the reason why human rights is so important as you know is that generally in societies the rules are designed to to suit the majorities and it doesn't you know there might be a society where 90 percent of people are gay and 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 10 percent are heterosexual in which case you would find the rules suiting the majority it doesn't really it's it's nothing to do with the actual characteristics it's just human nature that we like you say we preserve what is normal at the expense of uh, what is, you know, quote unquote abnormal or a transgression or an abomination or however you want to describe it. Um, but th- there's no moral sense in that at all. That's no. the whole point. That's what human rights is about. There's no moral connection between who is in the majority and who is who is right. And there's no doubt that our existence really stirs up uh, the, protect- the fear of change. I think people were, uh, tended to be okay 
with passing transsexual people uh, because, okay, well, you changed and that was messy and I'm a bit icky about that. But now, Christine, you're a up, fine, upstanding woman in society and therefore we can sort of live with that. That's okay. Uh, and actually the law helps us forget that that was, that was so. We'll go, we'll go along with what you wanted to do. But uh, as a result of what we've opened up, I think, we also saw then in the late noughties a growth of people who, having become more aware of, yeah, we are the edge case of, of, of transing, non-binary people being able to have an expression which they never had to, before, which is that actually there is a space between these binary poles which people were transitioning into, and that's where we go, that's where we exist, and we're finding that a substantial number of people identify with that. And I think that really, again, encourages an awful lot of fear particularly in people who like the status quo as it is. And I think perhaps non-binary people strike even more fear because by saying that there's a place that anybody can exist in comfortably between the poles of man and, and woman, then we, we sort of graduate, we're moving towards this point where gender and sex in society doesn't matter. We were doing that in the law anyway. You know, since since I was a teenager, there were so many instances where your 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 legal sex doesn't matter anymore. You know, culminating in equal marriage, where it doesn't matter whether the law thinks you're a man or a woman, but you can get married. But you know, so many other instances as well. And this is, if you like, the end game of second wave feminism. You know, which recognised quite rightly that if we were to liberate women from this second-class role in society created by the rules of patriarchy, the rules of gender that say how you can behave or what you can do, then we would actually approach a situation where we are just humans with our, with our talents and our foibles uh, and we can just do the things that we are talented to do. And this is ironic, ironic for me because the people who actually oppose uh, what we've done and our existence call themselves gender critical. And sometimes they say they want to do away with gender. Well, yeah, what I've just talked about is effectively what doing away with gender looks like. What's wrong with it? You know, uh, uh, people who talk about wanting to do away with gender have not shifted the, the goalposts one inch. Meanwhile, in our, in our charmingly <laughs> unaware fashion, you know, we have completely remodeled the field. And yeah, I appreciate that that scares a lot of people. I would say to people that actually what we show by our existence, by the fact that the thing that makes us humans is what goes on between our ears and how we express how we feel we are is the most quintessential um, part of, yeah, is, is the most quintessential human right, I think, just to be able to, to live a life where you are fully expressed. We offer that to everybody else as well. And everybody is richer for the possibility. In talks I give, if people go away feeling that less shackled by the gender rules that were drummed into them as children, then I'm happy. I don't want them to be transsexual. I don't want them to change gender, but I want them to be able to find 
a, a, a more comfortable expression of themselves by seeing the example that we set by having had to fight tooth and nail all our lives to express who we are. I, I just want to... Um pick up on something you said about the, the 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 gender critical view and i don't want to go into this in in any particular detail um and we're nearly done um you'll be happy to hear but <laughs> it, it, i suppose if if there was a gender critical person here now they would probably say well it's not it's not gender we want to do away with it's it's gender stereotypes um and and that's i guess the the bit of the whole conversation and i you know i i, I agree with the vast majority of what we're talking about but the bit of the conversation i find difficult is from a theoretical perspective is there we all as progressive people see there are gender stereotypes which we would we think which are unjustified you know a girl can't as, as, a, as a father of a boy and a girl you know my, my daughter says to me well you know football's for boys and um, and dolls are for girls or, or whatever you know those sorts of progressive concerns and we want to try and say to children you can do whatever you want to do so we we'll start from doing as in it doesn't matter that you're a girl or a boy you can go and play football or you know be this professional or whatever and that's you know i guess across all the the, the progressive communities we probably all agree with that now you then come to the point where there are certain people who in their hearts feel they're in the wrong gender and regardless of the gender stereotypes, because it will be, it probably doesn't matter what society they're part of, those contingent stereotypes don't matter. It's that they feel they are in the wrong gender. Now, how do you, how do you deal with that, that question of, well, we want to, yes, we want to get rid of gender stereotypes. But on the other hand, if somebody says to me, I am in the wrong gender, it's not for me to say, well, actually, you're, 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 the, you're the victim of gender stereotypes. It's for me to say, okay, you know, th 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 that's how you feel. That's your identity. You know, who am I to say? It's not, you know, you, you, I've tried to educate you in the way you, I've educated you and, and there it is. But how, do, you know, what, what, what's the answer to that? It, in, in, in a sentence. Well, I don't think I can do it in a sentence, but I think it's heartbreaking uh, because... Yeah, from when the very first, when I started to read what, uh, when they were still regarded as fringe, people who now call themselves gender critical uh, were saying, I would say, you know, there's a, there's a really good conversation we could have here because, you know, my experience is of actually uh, living some of that out uh, and finding that, and the reality is that society is, you know, it's not, it's not, I've got a problem, is society's got a really big problem because as you've correctly identified, you know, people, people are e find it easy to say, uh, I think people should be able to dress as they like, do whatever they like, but actually their, um, their boundaries are very sharp uh, and they don't um, live out what they're saying. So as you say, they, they, if they had a, a, a boy child, who likes putting on makeup and wearing the dress. Maybe they're not, you know, they're not trans, but they like, you know, they, they want to go to school in, in, a, in a princess costume or whatever. Then, you know, they, they're right up against the fact that they are actually so steeped in, uh, in, in gender rules that they can't actually see it. And that's a great shame to me. You know, they should be celebrating non-binary people in particular 
because they are doing exactly what they said. You know, non-binary people don't necessarily have surgeries. They don't have hormones. They're just saying, I'm not, you know, at the extremes that society provides. I, I live somewhere in the middle. And you'd, and you'd think that if you were trying to uh, advance a project that was about doing away with gender stereotypes, you'd rush forward and embrace those people and say, you know, how can we, how can we get you on all the television programs as good uh, as, as, as good examples of how we can have a better society where we're not hung up, where, where we don't brutalize boy children uh, by telling you know, by bringing them up to be tough and to uh, and to be you know, to carry around all sorts of neuroses because of the way that they were bullied as children. But that's what we do to boys. And likewise, you know, we, we stunt the development of, of, of girls. In my, in my profession, where I used to be in computer science, it's very obvious the girls start out being as good and as interested in computers as boys. But if you look at the numbers, there is a very, very marked trailing off, particularly at puberty, when the girls realize that this isn't regarded as being feminine, feminine and they, they just about have feel the social pressure to abandon computers. And that's a tragedy. We're losing talent because of that. Yeah, we should be able, even if we don't agree 100%, to bring our experiences to the table. I grew up, even though I was, you know, I'd learned not to talk about being trans, observing the world around me and because of my particular outlook on life you know, who I am I could see how absurd this stuff is played out uh, I couldn't do anything to stop it I'd love to work with people who do want to stop it but actually if they want to stop it then spending four or five years fighting trans people, trying to repeal the laws that we fought for just to be safe in society. Seems like a really strange way of doing it. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, thanks so much, Christine. It's a pleasure to have you on. So thank you very much indeed to Christine Burns for that fascinating conversation. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. And if you want to know more about this particular issue and about LGBTQ plus rights in general, then I highly recommend the podcast I did with the very sadly late Jonathan Cooper OBE which was one of the first episodes that I did I think it was episode four and I'll post a link with the description of this podcast so thanks very much please leave a review if you enjoyed the podcast and help push it up in the algorithms and also go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can help support the podcast by chipping in a few pounds a month my name is Adam Wagner this is the Better Human Podcast see you next time